Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 50. He, this is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as, are, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now, we're going to cover all of this tonight. I know you're going to have, look at me and say, that's impossible. You've never done that before. But we actually are. But let me also give you a little heads up and tip you off. We're going to be jumping around to do it. There's a lot that's here for us tonight. So let's just jump into it. Verses 24 through 33, though, Jesus is teaching in front of the crowds again. Remember, he's been in front of crowds, but then in private, his disciples will come and say, explain to us the parable you just did. Verses 24 through 33 are in front of the crowds but then his explanation of the parable of the weeds in the field doesn't happen until he's alone again with his disciples. Look at verse 36, Matthew 13, verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. 
Now, Jesus is teaching here about the weeds, of the weeds in the field. There was good seed in the field, and then there was weeds in the field. This teaching is about the harvest at the end of the tribulation period, right before the start of the millennial kingdom. And I'm going to kind of lay this out and show it to you from Scripture in just a little bit. But I want you to hear what I'm saying. When Jesus is talking about the end of the age and this harvest that's happening, this is not the rapture. This is actually the harvest at the end of the tribulation period. Remember, there's going to be the church age. The church age comes to a close. Jesus takes his church in the rapture. Then there's a seven-year period left for the nation of Israel and the whole world to go through a time of judgment and purification. At the end of that time period is when this harvest is going to happen. And as Jesus is showing us, and you'll see it from many other scriptures, the righteous are going to be gathered from all over the globe, and they're going to be brought into the kingdom of God there in Jerusalem, and at the same time in Israel. And the wicked who survived the tribulation period are going to be gathered, and they'll be taken off for judgment. Now, at the end of the age, there's going to be a final harvest of all people, like I said, and the wicked will be separated from the righteous and the wicked will be burned, and the righteous will be gathered to enter the kingdom. Let's so see where it, this is being taught us. Go to chapter 13, look at verses 47 and 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go to chapter 13, look at verses 37 through 43. Matthew 13, 37, he, Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they'll gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Look at chapter 13, verse 30. As he says here, Let both grow together until the harvest... And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here we keep seeing there's going to be a harvest at the end of the age, at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. Those who survive uh, all on the whole globe, the righteous will be entering the kingdom. The wicked will be taken away for judgment. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Look at verses 29. Through 31. Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now for years people have tried to make this the rapture, but it's not the rapture. Can anybody tell me why from this passage it's not the rapture? Yeah, it's at the end of the tribulation period. Remember in our study of Revelation, when is the sun going to go dark and the moon go dark and the sky recede like a scroll and all that stuff? That's at the end of the tribulation period. And by the way, in Revelation, when we studied it in chapter 19, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth, who's coming with him? We are. 
We are. We're already going to be go with him. We're going to get our rewards and we're going to come back with him at that time. As you've already seen through many passages, there's going to be a harvest at the end where the wicked will be gathered and taken to judgment. The righteous will also be gathered from across the globe and brought into the kingdom there in Israel. Just because it only mentions the gathering of the righteous here, don't just assume that it's not also that the wicked are are not going to be gathered. They are. Just in this passage, they only mention the gathering of the righteous. But go back to Matthew chapter 24. Let me kind of remind you of some things. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That end of the age sound familiar? We've been hearing it all through these passages at the end of the age is when this gathering is going to happen in this harvest. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they'll lead many astray, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation are going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Look closely at what he says, the birth pains. Now, if you, we've already been down this road, but I want to just remind you. They come and they ask him, and they want to be a sign of your coming in the end of the age. And Jesus says, let me just... Tell you something. He said, and he begins to describe the beginning of the tribulation period. If you parallel Matthew 24 with the book of Revelation and the opening of the seals, what's the first seal that's opened? Who comes out? <clears throat> the white horse, which is the Antichrist. And he said, there's going to be Antichrist. And then they've got the red horse and there's wars and then there's pestilence and so on. Jesus describes the beginning of the tribulation period. Have there been earthquakes that have been increasing on the globe? Sure. But that's not what he's referring to here. He's describing the beginning of the tribulation period. And actually, again, don't have time to remind you of this study and take you back there. But when he says these are just the beginning of the birth pains in the Old Testament, the prophecies that we're talking about, the time of Jacob's trouble, that time that's going to come upon the whole world. It's in many times referenced as she going through labor, the nation of Israel going through labor at that time. You Go look at Jeremiah 31 and you'll see it very clearly. I'll get right to you in a second. Go back and look at Malachi chapter 5 and you'll see it there as well. And so he says, I'm referencing those specific birth pains that have been prophesied about. And if you were to keep reading, he then goes and says, they're going to take you Jews and deliver you over to be uh, killed. And many are going to fall away because of me. And then he goes on to talks about the midpoint of the tribulation, how the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, you know, stand in the wing of the temple you better get out of Judea. You better run for your life. And then as we get to the end of this chapter, like we've just seen here, and then the sky's going to roll up like a scroll. The sun's going to go dark. The moon's going to go dark. They're going to see the Son of Man coming. And there's going to be a gathering of all the righteous. The angel's going to gather all the righteous and bring them into the kingdom. But what also wasn't referenced here, but we've already seen in chapter 13 over and over and over, who else is going to be gathered and harvested at that time? The wicked, the evil. And they're going to be gathered to take away for judgment. Yes, ma'am. My question. Um, mm-hmm. It said in um, Matthew 24:30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. Is that talking about heaven, the skies? Yes. And also the Son of Man, is that the cross? No, that's Jesus himself. Jesus that's himself. Jesus himself coming. 
He's going to show up. And at that time, if you remember from our study, everybody's going to see him all at once. He said, don't remember he told him earlier, if someone says, hey, the Christ is over here. Don't believe him. Or, hey, the Christ has appeared and so and so. Don't believe him because when he comes, he said, everybody in the whole globe are going to see him all at the same time. Did you have a question as well? Okay. You just had that look on your face, I guess. <laughs> Go to Matthew chapter 25. Go to Matthew 25. Look at verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Stop before we go any further. If Jesus is coming to the earth and then he sits on the throne, where's the throne? It's on the earth. This is Jesus' return. This parable of the sheep and the goats. People have for years tried to make this apply to the church. Folks, you're going to hurt yourself if you try to fit the church into Matthew 24. Because actually, the church is going to be gone at the time all those beginning of the birth pains happen. The church is already going to be gone. He's talking to the Jews who are going to be around at that time. And this separating of the sheep and the goats that we're about to read is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period, at this harvest time that we've been referencing. And, well, let me ask you a question. Does the Bible teach that as a part of the church that we go to heaven because we gave someone some water or we visit them in prison or we clothe them? No. But as you hopefully remember from our study of Revelation, the Bible said in Joel chapter 2 that God's going to gather all the nations at the end of the tribulation period and treat them or judge them according to how they treated Israel. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison or in prison and visit you and the king will answer them truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers who are the brothers Israel you did it to me then he will say to those on his left depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels for I was hungry and you gave me no food I was thirsty and you gave me no drink I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me naked and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison you didn't visit me then they'll also answer saying Lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you then he'll answer them saying truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. I don't know if you caught this yet or not, but in all these parables, Jesus is reiterating in many different ways. The only place that wasn't a parable was Matthew 24, where he just lays out specifically what's going to happen. But in all the rest of them, in these parables, he's illustrating a simple truth. At the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the age, right before his return, there is, and tied to his return, is going to be a judgment of the whole world. And the righteous will enter the kingdom the wicked will not enter the kingdom. And they're going to be what? It's been saying, it's said it over and over and over. They're going to be burned with fire. Go ahead. So who is he actually talking to then? If he was talking, because remember, 
Last week you were talking about that he's only going to be talking in parables when he's with the crowds and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now he's going to be talking. Who is he talking about or who is he talking to? Who he's talking to is the Jews. He's still at this time, he's in Jerusalem and he's teaching in the last days of his life and he's speaking to the nation of Israel. I thought he was only going to be talking in parables though. Because but, he, but he is. This is a parable here. Remember that Matthew 24, when he gave very specific of what's going to happen, that was to his disciples. Remember, they came to him privately and said, when will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? 24 was to his disciples in private, which you've seen over and over. 25, we see, is when he's speaking to the nation of Israel. Really, That's a good question. All right. Now, I want to, I want to chase a rabbit here for a second because it'll help us. But go ahead. I was going to ask you about uh, verse 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did one, one of these least of these, my brother. Who are the brothers? Wouldn't that be the leaders? Nope. He's talking, he's talking about the nation of Israel. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. Go, go to Joel chapter 2. Again, you always let Scripture interpret Scripture. Joel chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, look at verses 1 and following. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Do you see it? This is what's going to be happening here in Matthew 25 when he comes and sets up his kingdom. He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to gather all the nations and he's going to judge, judge them according to how they treated Israel. All right. Oh, and by the way, uh, are the nation of Israel going to be going through a real hard time during that time period? Are there going to be some put in prison? They're going to be those who are starving. They're going to be those who are just like back in the time when the Holocaust was happening and the Germans were going after them. Remember the, the, the Corey Ten Boom story and the hiding place? There were those who looked after Israel. That's going to be happening again because of those who believe that Jesus is who he is. And he's going to be they're going to be those that come to faith during the tribulation period. And many will look after them. Many won't. But here's what I want you to hear close, very clearly here. Parables are analogies that tell a story and have a teaching purpose. We do well to simply let the meaning of the story come out and not try to break them down too much. I really want to show you this. It's hopefully going to become very clear from our passages that we're looking at tonight. Let me say it to you again. Parables are analogies that tell a story and have a teaching purpose. You'll do well to simply let the meaning of the story come out and not break them down too much. Some people try to take these parables and try to figure out every little area. And this means this and this means that. You know what I'm saying? To do so would be one, to miss the point of spiritual truth being revealed to the humble and forgetting that spiritual truth is not figured out with human intellect. Remember, we spent that whole time last week dealing with that. If you think that you're going to sit down and take these parables and you're going to figure out what every little thing means, you totally miss the whole point. Parables are simple stories. What's the what's the point of these parables that that we've been seeing so far? At the end of the age, the righteous are going to be gathered and they're going to enter the kingdom. The wicked are going to be gathered and they're going to go to eternal judgment of fire. Don't try to make it say any more than that because it'll hurt you because spiritual truth is not figured out with human intellect. 
it's received by faith. And parables are just simple stories that tell this truth. Uh, in this one here especially, uh, have we not already seen through our study that there's going to be Judases among us, even in the church? Is it our job to figure out who is really saved and who's not? No, just leave that to the Lord. Leave it all to the end. But there's a second reason why I want you to understand why we shouldn't take all the time to try to break down every parable and figure out every little minutia of it. Let me give you an example. In the parable of the soils that we studied last time, what was the seed? What did the seed represent in the parable of the soils? No, no, no. Parable, that was the word of God. Go to, let me show you again. Go to Luke chapter 8. Let me remind you, remember the parable of the soils is some seed fell on the rocky path and thorny soil and so on. Go to Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 4 through 11. <clears throat> and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell in good, into the good soil and grew and yielded a, a hundredfold. Uh, and as he said these things, he called out, he was ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So in the parable of the soils, the seed is the word of God. But in the parable of the weeds and the wheat that we just looked at tonight, what is the seed? Is it the word of God? It's what? No, it's not the church. It's believers. It's the sons of the kingdom. So it includes the church, but they won't be there at the end at the harvest. But yes, the seed in this parable is not the word of God, but the seed in this parable is believers. The good seed of the people, the, the, the righteous, the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So you see the danger of trying to make every little thing mean something? Because in one parable, seed meant one thing. In another parable, some of the, it meant something else. L let me show you something else. In the same way, the word leaven all through the scriptures means something different than it does in the parable we have here. Look at Matthew 13 again and look at verse uh, 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, that's messed a lot of people up because it sounds like here it's a good thing. And it is. But all the other times you see leaven in the scriptures, it's a bad thing. Let me show you what I mean by that. Go to Matthew 16. You're in Matthew 13. Go to Matthew chapter 16 and look at verses 5 through 12. In Matthew 16, verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak to you about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So in this 
situation, leaven is referencing the false teaching of the Pharisees. And just like leaven or yeast gets in and infiltrates the whole thing, the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even though it might seem small, can do a lot of damage. And he just simply said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And leaven in that instance represented false teaching. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. Wait a minute. I thought we just found out the leaven of the Pharisees was false teaching. Now Jesus says the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. So which is it? Both. And actually, you're going to see there's more than that. But again, the point of a parable is it's a simple story that shares a simple truth. When you allow the Spirit of God to help you see that truth from that story, you got it. You don't have to break it down anymore because to do so, you're going to mess yourself up because Jesus uses similar words, but they mean different things in different stories. And that's why you've got to let the scripture kind of help you see and the spirit of God help you see what he's referring to here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Yes, sir. All the, all the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't. Uh, Not all of them, but at the same time, most of them, most of them were. 1 Corinthians 5, because uh, go to verse 6, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you truly are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, you do know back in the Passover, they were told not they were told to make bread without yeast, without leaven. And what did the yeast and the leaven represent in that? And that's why the bread was without yeast. What did it represent? Sin. And that's why Paul here, when he's talking to the church here, and they got a guy in the church who's sleeping with his father's wife, and the church thinks it's okay. They're actually proud, he says. He goes, guys, don't you realize a little bit of sin affects the whole batch? Get rid of that sin that's in your church. Has anybody ever ordered like oranges or fruit to be shipped? Did you ever get a batch of fruit that one of the oranges or one of the apples had gotten bad? And everything around it was affected, was it not? It just kind of spread, and you had to throw all that section away in the same way. So is the leaven uh, sin, or is it hypocrisy, or is it false teaching? Exactly. Now, all those are bad things, but in this parable here, the simple story, the simple truth is, is just like yeast affects just a little bit, goes and spreads, so will the kingdom of God. That's all it is. It's a simple truth that the kingdom of God is going to grow. It may start small. It may seem small, but it's going to grow. By the way, isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18? If you don't know what I'm talking about, turn there real quick. Go to Matthew 16. And as you're looking to get ready for verse 18, let me remind you of the context. Jesus has just said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they list all these different people. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. My father's opened your eyes. 
And look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. He had already called him Simon because that was his real name when he was born by his parents. But when he first met Simon Peter, he calls him, says, your name is Simon. But one day you're going to be called Peter. And he says, now you are Peter. And on this rock, this profession of your faith, I will build my church. Listen, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, you know what? The kingdom may seem to be starting small, but it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to be huge. Actually, that's what he had just said in the previous parable in chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. Right before the parable of the leaven, he said in verse 31 and 32, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, how many of you have ever seen a mustard seed? Anybody here, show of hands, who have actually seen a mustard seed? For those of you that haven't, if I had one on the tip of my finger, you couldn't see it. It's unbelievably small, really, really tiny. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Even though it's the smallest of all the seeds, you put it in the ground and it grows one of the biggest garden plants. And then he says something very interesting. He said it's going to grow. The kingdom of God's going to grow like this mustard seed's going to grow, become this big bush, big tree, and all the birds are going to come and make their nests in it. Here Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God starts small and it will grow to be absolutely huge. Listen closely and involve both Jews and Gentiles. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim, where did you get that interpretation? Well, I'll tell you where I got that interpretation. From a book that you're probably still shaking if I say the name of it. It's called Ezekiel. <laughs> Go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. Go back to Ezekiel 17. Jesus is telling a parable through the prophet Ezekiel to the nation of Israel. And we see in, our, in your headings, it says the parable of two eagles and a vine. We're in chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 22. But the heading at the, and, and at the beginning shows you that. As he's dealing and sharing this parable about how there's going to be this one eagle, which is going to be Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon. And this other eagle is going to be uh, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and how the vine, which is in this story, uh, Israel, and they're going to go after following after these guys. He says something very interesting, though, in verse 22. He says, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out or set it apart. I'll break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. So here in this parable, he says after he's made his prophecy about how the Israel is going to go after uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then they're going to chase after Pharaoh. He then makes this prophecy about the very end, about the kingdom. He said, I'm going to take just the top of the cedar, a tiny little sprig, and I'm going to plant it where? On a lofty mountain where? In Israel. 
Do you remember our study of Revelation at the end of the tribulation period? How there's going to be this massive earthquake, the Bible says, and all the whole world's going to be leveled. The islands are going to disappear. There's not going to be any more mountains. Israel itself will be broken into three parts. The center part will be raised up high, and the northern part and the southern part will become plains. You remember how the Bible says in the millennial kingdom, people are going to ascend the hill of the Lord to go worship the Lord in Jerusalem? Here he's talking about that. And again, he even says that term. I'm going to have birds from all around come and make its nest there in its shade. Go to chapter 31 of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 31. Look at verses 1 through 6. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height and its top among the clouds. It, the waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived who? All the nations. Here is he's talking about Assyria when they were, God gave them authority over the earth at that time. Remember, there's all these different kingdoms that Daniel saw and how there's going to be Assyria, then there's going to be Babylon, and there's going to be the Greeks and the Romans and so on. For a period of time, God allowed the nation of Assyria to become this powerful big tree that it had dominion over the land and all the nations gathered under its shade. So we've seen this word picture before in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God's going to be like. The kingdom of God's going to be like this mustard seed, even though it's small, it's going to grow and become this great tree. And all the birds, all the nations are going to come and gather in the kingdom. You do know that the Bible says very clearly that the kingdom of God is not just for the nation of Israel. It's for everybody, Jew and Gentile. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, Jim, hang on. You keep saying kingdom of God, but Matthew's saying kingdom of heaven. Well, let me remind you, go back to Matthew 13, look at verses 31 and 32. I'm going to read it to you very slowly because I want you to listen closely to what it says. Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, look at verses 30 through 32. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make, its, make nests in its shade. So here we see Mark's account of the exact same parable, but Mark uses the term kingdom of God. 
Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Does anybody remember why Matthew says kingdom of heaven? Matthew was writing to the Jews. And remember, the Jewish mindset was you never say the name God. It's too holy to be mentioned. And so Matthew, because his audience was predominantly Jewish, to respect that attitude, you'll see throughout, will not say kingdom of God, but it will say kingdom of heaven. And because of that, people all, again, because the church tries to read the church into all the end time stuff, when the Bible says we're not going to be here at the very, very end, they try to turn this all into going into heaven, the kingdom of heaven. No, it's a literal kingdom on the earth. It's the kingdom of God that has been prophesied over and over. And let me remind you, if Jesus doesn't actually come back to this earth and set up an actual kingdom on this earth in Israel, then God has broken his promises. Because God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you can go and double check. He says it more than once. He said to each of them, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever receive the land? No, they all died not having received what was promised. It says that twice in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. We know that when Abraham's wife Sarah died, he had to purchase a piece of property to bury her because the land didn't belong to him. They wandered in that land. They lived in tents, but they were strangers and pilgrims in that land. It wasn't until the time of Moses that God began to give it to the nation of Israel. Of course, because of the disobedience, he took them out. Then he brought them back in. He took them out. He brought them back in. They're back in it again now. Just setting the stage for the last days. But at the same time, if he doesn't come back and give the land to Israel, oh, and didn't Jesus say, we're going to be able to sit at the feast in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This is a literal kingdom of God on the earth. So don't let kingdom of heaven make you think it's just we're all going to go to heaven. No, one day we'll be in the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state. There's still a long period of time, a thousand years of the kingdom of God that is going to be actually on this earth. It's going to be an amazing time and we're going to get to be a part of it. <clears throat> now, let's go look at the parables in verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. I assumed you read my mind and, and you actually did. So very good. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The first parable describes someone who found a treasure and sold all that he had to get this treasure. In the same line of thought, Jesus describes a merchant who sells all that he has to purchase the pearl of great price. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is this how you see your salvation in the coming kingdom? Is it the most important thing to you? Are you willing to forsake everything else to receive it? Now, to illustrate that, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story. Back in 1988, years ago, I was a youth pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic. And one Sunday morning, I performed a skit with a friend of mine named David Walker. I don't know where he got this skit, but it was one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And he taught it to me. And the two of us on a Sunday morning up on the pulpit there performed this skit. And here's what it is. He was a seller of pearls. And I was out looking for pearls. And I came up to his store and I found this pearl of great price. 
And it was an amazing pearl. And I asked the owner of the pearl, I said, how much is this pearl? He said, this pearl costs all that you have. And I said to him, I only have 20 bucks on me. He goes, then the price is 20 bucks. It's, it's all you have. If all you have is $20, $20 in the, in the pearl is yours. I'm like, that's an amazing deal. So I pulled out $20 and I gave it to him. And I walked away with this pearl. And I said, as I walked away, man, I can't wait to get this home. And he said, whoa, whoa, hang on for a second. Did you just say you have a house? And I was like, well, yeah. He goes, um, the house is included in the price. It, the price of this pearl is everything you have. You need to give me your house. Or else you can't have the pearl. And I'm like, I know it seems crazy, but this pearl's so amazing. And I pulled the deed to my house out of my pocket, and I gave him the deed, the title to my house. As I walked away, I thought, well, I said this, I said, you know, I'm probably going to have to sleep in my car tonight. <laughs> he goes, hang on for a second. Did you say you had a car? I'm like, well, yeah. He goes, the, the car is included in the price of this pearl. The price of this pearl is all that you have. So I wrestled with it and pulled the keys out of my pocket and I gave him the keys to my car. As I walked away, I said, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to my wife and my kids. And he goes, whoa, whoa, hang on for a second. Did you say you have a wife and kids? Well, well yeah, I have a wife and kids. He goes, um, they're included in the price of this pearl. You see, the price of this pearl is all that you have. I actually pulled pictures out of my wallet and I gave him my wife and my kids and I went away with great joy. But as I went away, he stopped me and he said, come here for a second. And he gave me the deed to my house, which was his. And he gave me the keys to the car and he gave me the pictures of the family back. And he said, listen closely. He said, I want you to enjoy these. But remember, they belong to me. It's all mine. Folks, listen to me. Too many people who claim Christianity see their faith in Christ as one of the parts of their lives. For those of us who have been saved, he must be everything. Listen closely. He doesn't want to be first and other things second, third, and fourth. He wants to be everything. In other words, he gets to pick who you marry. He gets to pick what job you take. He gets to pick where you live. He gets to pick how you live your life. You give your life to him to receive this great pearl of great price or this treasure hidden in a field. You're willing to forsake everything to get it and to get him. Go back to Luke 14. Go to Luke 14. I'm going to ask you again. Is this how you see your salvation and the coming kingdom? Is it the most important thing to you? Are you willing to forsake all to receive it? Jesus very clearly in Luke 14 verses 25 through 33 laid this out for us. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus, as you hopefully understand, wasn't saying you got to go hate your mom and dad and kill yourself. What he was saying was, is he must be first above all things to the point that your love for your parents or yourself seems almost like hatred in comparison to how much you love him. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Folks, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart to follow Christ. Jesus is showing us means he is Lord of everything in your life. He gets to call the shots in all aspects of your life. I know a lot of people that claim the name of Christ who will say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins, but I'm not going to let him have that area of my life. Jesus says, if you're not willing to let him have that area of your life, you're not his disciple. You have to be willing to say, Lord, what would you have me do? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever it is that you do, you do it all to the glory of God. Go to 2 Corinthians. You're in 1 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Folks, Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field is illustrating the fact that we have to be willing to forsake everything to follow him. Now, the good news is, as we do, he gives us many of those things back and he wants us to enjoy and enjoy life. But he says, remember, they're mine. We have to be reminded, be reminded of that with our kids, don't we? I'm sure some of you had a baby dedication ceremony in church one time with your children and you brought them before the Lord and brought her before the Lord and had a ceremony where they prayed and you designated and said, Lord, this child you gave us, but he belongs to you. She belongs to you. And how often do we have to be reminded of that? When we have plans for our kids and God says, well, I might have a different plan. Years ago, when I was pastor in Chicago, there was a family in the church, longtime family in the church. And their oldest daughter married a young man and two of them felt a strong call to go to one of the hardest areas of Africa on missions. And the mom was having the hardest time letting her go. And as I sat down with her to talk to her about this, I had to remind her, I said, did, did you take Kim and at a certain point? Give her to the Lord in a dedication service. She goes, yeah, we still got the pictures. I said, you need to go back to that day and remember, you already gave her back then to him and he gets to call where she lives and what she does. We need to be reminded that it's all about him and not about us. What I want to do in the time we have left tonight is I want to close with verses 34 and 35. Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. All these things... Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, let me just stop you real quick. Jeremy can't answer and Elise can't answer because they were there last night. 
But does anybody know which prophet is the one that Jesus is referring to? Take a guess. Elijah? No. Ezekiel? No. Isaiah? No. Jeremiah? No. Daniel? No. Joel? No. Hosea? No. Matthew? No. I'm sorry? It was very good. Chris got it. It's Asaph. Go to Psalm 78. <laughs> Folks, let me say something to you here. Go, hey, it's good to have cross-referencing. Psalm 78 is where this is. And listen to me, folks. The Psalms are full of prophecies. Actually, if you study the New Testament, you'll see that uh, most of the prophecies that they refer to in the old, from the Old Testament are from the book of Psalms. David was a prophet, but Asaph as well was a prophet because God spoke through him in the prophecies that are here in some of the writings of Asaph. And look at Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children of yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. If you were to read this whole chapter, because you look, it's a lot of verses, it's actually 72 verses long. You read this whole chapter, you'd see that God revealed himself to the nation of Israel over and over, but they continually rebelled. Here he says, look, I, I, I've done all these things in your midst, and I want you to tell them to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. But he also said, I'm going to end up having to speak to them in parables. Why? Because they became rebellious and stiff-necked, and they wouldn't follow. And God in his mercy... And for his own glory, didn't totally wipe the nation of Israel out. He had every right to. They've been even more wicked than all the other nations. Why? Because they received more light, remember? In comparison to how much the other nations had revealed to them, Israel had way more revealed to them, and therefore they're in higher accountability. And God had every right to wipe out the nation of Israel. But why do the Israelites still exist? Because God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and he promised that they would be a people forever and ever for his own name. Now, did individual Jews in the process miss out on some of these promises? Of course they did. But as a whole, the nation has been kept alive by God. Go to Psalm 78, look at verses 34 through 41. <clears throat> God speaking of his judgment, when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. 
how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So as he said he would, he's speaking to them in parables now, so that their insight would only come through humility and in faith in his opening of their eyes. I'm going to say it to you one more time, because even though you've heard it over and over, I want you to hear it again, because it applies to us now. As he said he would, he's speaking to them in parables, so that their insight would only come through humility and faith in his opening of their eyes. Listen to me, folks. So too it is with us today. If we are humble on a daily basis and say no to our flesh and yield to his spirit, we too will receive wisdom, insight, understanding, and light. I'm going to show you scriptures that show you this promises. Now, I want to make a commercial, not for next week. We're not having Bible study next week because I'm going to be preaching in New Jersey on Monday and flying back on Tuesday of next week, so there'll be no Bible study Tuesday and Wednesday. But the week following, we're going to be finishing chapter 13 of Matthew, and we're going to end up where Jesus goes into his hometown in Nazareth, and they reject him in his hometown as he speaks in the synagogue, and at the end of that section, it says that he was not able to do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And what we're going to spend much of our time dealing with on next time we get together is the fact that how much have we missed out on, how much are we missing out on that God wants to do in our midst because of unbelief. We're going to go down a road that makes some Baptists uncomfortable. And don't, don't get scared. I'm a Baptist myself. But at the same time, we're going to deal with the promises that say, ask, seek, knock. If you ask according to my will, you have it. You'll do greater things than these. We're going to deal with these promises. And I want to get you prepared that we miss out on a lot ourselves because God is a generous God. And for those who are humble and allow him and don't try to figure things out in their own ability, like, well, what does this mean? And I think maybe. And no, you humble yourself and you say, Lord, I'm a child. I don't need to have gone to seminary. I don't need to have the Greek and the Hebrew like I've been lied to and by the enemy and thinking that only the preachers like Jim that have been to school can understand these things. You said that you would teach me. You put your spirit within me and you'll guide me. You'll teach me all the truth. Lord, I want understanding. I want insight. Listen to me. The Bible says today it's the same way. The Jews would not humble themselves and they tried to do it on their own. So too it is today that if we on a daily basis will humble ourselves and say, Lord, I have questions. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I know everybody here would raise your hand. And if you didn't, you'd be lying to me tonight. But every one of you, I'm sure, have some things right now that you're praying about that you would like some insight on. Decisions that are coming up. What do I do? How do I handle this? What should I do in this area? That we all have that. God's leading us through those over and over so that we'll seek him and follow him. But listen to what the scripture says in Romans chapter 12. Go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> We've learned to quote it so fast, many of us have missed what it actually says at the end of this section. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. By the way, this world, being conformed to this world is living for self. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see it? If you're willing on a daily basis to humble yourself and lay your flesh on the altar 
and don't live for self and don't try to think it's up to you to figure it out, but to humble yourself and say, Lord, I got questions. I need insight. The Bible says you will be able to know what his will is. Go to James chapter one. James chapter one, look at verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Listen closely. How many of you, when you lack wisdom, your first thought is, I'm going to ask my preacher. You should go to God. Now, he uses us preachers and teachers, but we need to make sure that we don't step into the place of God and give you your answer. We should be pointing you to him. Let him ask God who gives generously to everyone without reproach and he'll be given. But let this person ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We'll deal with this when we meet in a couple weeks again. We'll deal with that in a lot more detail. But the Bible says if you lack wisdom... Ask God, he'll give it to you generously. Go to James chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Oh, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Lay your flesh on the altar again. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Folks, as we close, you go back and you take a look at all the instances that we've looked at so far in Matthew in chapter 13, where Jesus spoke to the masses, but he spoke in parables, but he gave the insight to his disciples in private. In every single one of those instances, even we saw it again tonight in Matthew 24, the disciples humbly came to him and asked first. Did you see it? They came to him in each instance and says, we don't understand. Could you explain it to us? And that's what he responds to. How come the Jews are hardened right now and have a partial hardening and they're blind to the truth of who Jesus is? Because he's revealed it over and over in their pride and they thought that they could do it themselves. They didn't receive it in the only way that it could be given, spiritual truth, humility. And too many of us are trying to read the scriptures and figure it out. Let me just say something to you. Beware of those people out there that are teaching the Bible codes and all these secret formulas that are out there for understanding the scripture. I don't know if some of you have heard about this or not, but let me just say there's people out there that are teaching that there's this code in the scriptures and someone has found the code and this means this and this means that. And once you figure the code out, you get insight into the scriptures. Listen to me. That's not how God reveals spiritual truth. 
I actually, as far as I ever got in math, and this is through college, was algebra one. I've never taken calculus. I don't even know what it is to this day. I, there wasn't even trigonometry that I know of when I was in high school. There's all these levels of math that people understand makes my head hurt. I, by God's grace, was able to get through college. The most I ever took was Algebra One. Thank God there's no secret code that you have to figure out the formula. <laughs> Thank you that there's no theorems. Thank God that he's revealed it to those of us who ain't smart. All right. I want to say the same to you. Don't sit back and say, boy, the Jews, they just missed out because they were too proud and they wouldn't humble themselves. Oh, you're going to get there in two weeks. You're going to see from Scripture there's much that we're missing out on as well because God has much more for us. But it's only going to be received by those who are willing to humbly come to him on a daily basis and say, what do you have for me today? Lord, I'm wrestling with something and I don't understand. Could you give me insight? And as you're going to see next time we get together, praying and believing that he'll do something doesn't mean you'll say, okay, Lord, I believe you're going to give me an answer. You got 24 hours. Real faith says, you'll tell me when it's time and I'll wait because I believe you'll show me and I won't try to make it happen myself. All through the scriptures, you'll see God give people a test and then he'll get quiet and he'll see whether or not they're going to wait on him or whether or not they're going to take it into their own hands. My encouragement to you tonight is this. Humble yourself on a daily basis. Ask God. He will show you. I love you. See you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.